and hear you here this morning. And uh, appreciate each of you coming out early and uh, worshiping God, encouraging one another. I do want to say uh, we've started receiving calls about our diaper giveaway. Uh, we ask people to reserve um, you know, their, their place in the line. Uh, so we didn't just want to put a sign out on the street and see who came and then have too many or have wrong sizes and all that sort of thing. So we asked people to reserve a spot. I'm sure there'll be some that drive up. But uh, for those that reserve, we'll make sure we have what they need. And so they've started coming in. We're working with the food shelf on that. Uh, the food shelf has a um, somebody who oversees like uh, baby products and the distribution of baby products, and so they've been handing out the information to uh, to people as they come in and get those from the food shelf, uh, which has been uh, been really good for us. Um, I, I notice there are some people that uh, have purchased large boxes, which is great. Uh, I'm not sure; I haven't opened any. Uh, whether there are packets inside of it. It's kind of important that we have packets uh, to be able to give people because uh, just having 500 diapers in a box means that's one car. Um, whereas if we have a bunch of packets of 20 or 30 or whatever size, then we can give that same number to a lot of different families. So uh, uh, it's good to have the big ones because I, I think the very first call we got was someone with twins. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and so those, those big ones will be a blessing to some families, but uh, there are other, uh, other families that we just need to be able to give them, uh, have enough for everyone. All right. Today is uh, Pentecost. Don't know if you knew that. Uh, it is 50 days from Easter, and a really very significant day. We, of course, we don't, haven't typically uh, made much of it. it certainly compared to Christmas and Easter, but I think it's significant, at least just to mention, that we're 50 days past Easter, and as we are traveling through the book of Acts, these uh, moments are part of the church life. Uh, we're, we're, there are events that happen at Pentecost, and, and, and I, I think there are a lot of things, like let's say the birth of Christ, we don't know exactly the dates for that. Um, that's, there's no real indication in Scripture as to when that might have been. We've picked a date, and it works for us. With Easter, there's all sorts of complications about the calendar. I get that. And the Eastern Church and the Western Church throughout history have had different dates, and the Jews have their own date. But nonetheless, it's, it's very ballpark. You know, we know the, the general time of the year, and we're stuck with a calculation, and we, we know that. And so once you know Easter, then you know Pentecost. Once you know Easter, you know when you could sort of relive that last week of Jesus' life and uh, the events and the days and the resurrection and, and the 40 days or 50 days in between, right? 40 days in between. And then uh, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit coming on the church at Pentecost. And so oftentimes, we want to just talk about the significance of Pentecost has been maybe the birthday of the church. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Perhaps, I, I don't, that's not my favorite term because I, I think that Jesus was doing a lot of church stuff and calling disciples and making followers before Pentecost. But certainly at Pentecost, the thing that is very significant is the outpouring 
of the Holy Spirit, the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the people of God in a way that had not taken place before. And I, I think it's worth taking a moment just to reflect on that. Because the arrival of the Holy Spirit changed history. It changed, it, it empowered the spread and everything that we're doing. I've mentioned that the book of Acts is, is another way of thinking about it. Uh, your heading probably says Acts of the Apostles. But there's a, a lot of people that would prefer to have it titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit as we see the, the Holy Spirit empowering uh, God's people and uh, spreading the gospel throughout uh, that part of the world. So we pick up that story. Really, it begins at Pentecost, or it begins, okay, it begins at Genesis. But in, in the book of Acts, it, it begins in at Pentecost. In chapter 1, Jesus has said his farewells to his apostles, returned to the throne in heaven, and then they look around and they say, now what? And so from chapter 2 to chapter 28 of the book of Acts, it kind of, we could think of that section as, now what? Uh, as it's explained. We've reached the halfway point of the book now. You say, Peter, it's got 28 chapters. Halfway is 14. And that is true if you're counting chapters. But in terms of the content, we are at the halfway point of the book. In this chapter, we are going to see the Apostle Peter, well, in fact, we just closed our reading with that verse. In verse uh, 17, we see, it says here in my Bible, Peter exits stage left. Um, he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, his rescue and escape from prison, he said, and then he left for another place. And that's it. Everything that we know about the ministry of Peter in the first church, we've read by this point. And so just as he exits stage left, we see Saul, who has already been in the wings, has already popped out and made some cameos. He now enters stage right. And I believe that throughout, the Holy Spirit maintains center stage in this story. Similarly, we get a change of backdrop. The backdrop uh, has been um, around Jerusalem, around that sort of area. It went up to Antioch, uh, we saw last week. But uh, the, the stage crew has got to work, and they're switching out the scenes. And we're now going to move from Jerusalem and Judea to parts of the world that we don't know so much about. All the time throughout the Bible, up till now, we've had a little bit of stuff happening in Babylon, a little bit in Assyria and Persia, but mostly it all happened in this tiny strip of land right there around Jerusalem, north and south, the nation of, of the promised land, the nation of Israel. But now, for the rest of Acts, the vast majority of the action is going to take place in modern-day Greece and Turkey, Syria, the sort of northeastern part of the Mediterranean. And, and we're going to head in that direction when we come to chapter 13. So what, how do you close a section like this? How do you manage this transition from the apostles to, in, in Jerusalem to the elders in Jerusalem, from Peter to Saul or Paul. 
What do you do to wrap up that section? Well, the chapter tells this dramatic story of Peter being jailed and then freed from jail by an angel. And, and it's an entertaining story. It's a good one for VBS. And uh, in some of the applications we might make there are about God's providence, God's care, God's love for us. And I think they're all good and appropriate. But I think more than that, it, it climaxes this time in Jerusalem by highlighting or reminding us of the tension that is always inherent between the church and the state. You see, we think of Herod maybe as a person. But Herod isn't a person. Herod's an institution. This is actually the third Herod. If you began reading in the beginning of the Gospels and came all the way through Luke to here, this is the third Herod in that family. It's like a family name. It's also a almost like a title at this point. Um, you don't have to say King Herod, although he does here in verse 1. The Herods were the kings. They were the dominant. They weren't Jews, um, but they were the kings of the Jews at this time in history. And so Herod arrests and kills the Apostle James. It's thought that he's fairly new to the throne when he does this. He's looking to solidify his power, increase his popularity. And how does he do that? By arresting James and then executing him. And even though this isn't a democracy, notice how he responds to crowd approval. Okay. And, and I'm not saying that Herod is the template for every ruler and every government official who has ever lived. That every ruler, every government official who has ever lived always faces pressure to please the crowds. Always faces pressure to please the crowds. Some will give in and some will not. But interestingly, all of this story is going to take place um, at the time of Passover. We see that in verse 3. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. It's another name for Passover. And so I think it's interesting that this particular story is one that is told and that it happens at this time because it reminds me of the last time we encountered Passover in this story. It was the night before Jesus was crucified that he met with his disciples, that he celebrated Passover with them. And then he was unjustly arrested and executed. And so I think we're challenged right here, just as we, our minds go back to Jesus' arrest and execution, that as Passover rolls around, as we're the new church is, young church is thinking on those events each Passover that James at that same time is also arrested and executed. And then the bloodlust is fueled within Herod and he decides to take it further and he arrests Peter. 
also. And I think there's a challenge here that says to us, hey, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Because I I think we we like that idea, don't we, to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, I've often heard the Bible, you think of the book of Revelation, people will sort of joke and say the summary of it is, hey, God wins. And and God does win. And, And so if that, though, is our way that we perceive all of life, that we think that because God wins at the end of the story, that on each page of the story, God is going to be triumphant. Then we forget what it means to follow Jesus. Because Jesus went to the cross. And now James goes to his death. And yes, the game changer is that Jesus rose on the third day. And that James was also had that expectation that in due time he would rise to be with Christ. And so when we come to Peter and we look at his circumstances, he's arrested and he's put in prison. But this isn't just a holding cell left to his own devices down at the local police station. Peter is kept in maximum security. Do you see that in verse 4? They put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Sixteen guards for one preacher. And I, I, I presume from the description that they run a rotation, but Herod intends to bring him out for public trial after Passover. Because notice over here then in verse 6, if you have your Bible there, that it describes how these guards, how these soldiers uh, were placed. It says, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Peter is chained to a soldier on his left, a soldier on his right, and two outside the door of his cell. We also see in verse 8 that the first instructions to the angel, after the angel breaks the chains on him, are to put on your clothes and sandals. So he's apparently kept naked two soldiers right next to him. No privacy, total humiliation and shame. Two more outside the door, rotating every how many hours, 24-hour watch. Like, we don't get all those details in VBS. He wasn't just arrested. Peter was arrested and dehumanized. He was being prepared for execution. Which makes us think what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But the church was praying for him. And again, there's another sermon that I'm not preaching today about the power of prayer. Now, I do wonder if James's mother was in that group of people praying for the release of Peter. 
and how she felt as she read this chapter and subsequent to it. Or John, as he was still grieving the death of his brother, perhaps. But the church is praying for them. We see that in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. Later on in verse uh, 12, as he's been released, when the day had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So I don't know if they'd been praying all night or if they just got there before the sun came up, but this church, this, this group of Christians, were committed. I can't remember a time in my years here at Lawson Road that we've got together for an all-night prayer vigil. Um, this was something they were very intense, very committed to and about. Now this is about 10 years after Jesus' death. Okay, We know that because of who the Herod is and we know when that Herod died. And so uh, there's been 10 years between Acts 1 and Acts chapter 12. Thereabouts, 10 to 15, I should say, because the dates are a little fuzzy. And I find it interesting to notice the difference here between the, the, the Christians, the followers of Jesus when he was arrested, and how they responded by leaving him and going to an upper room, and perhaps they were praying there, but they weren't, they didn't really know what was going on. They weren't, didn't know what to expect. Uh, they certainly weren't praying for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, they were, you know, there was a lot of fear among them on that first Easter morning. But now, when Peter's arrested, the church knows what to do. They come together. They pray. And, and it's funny because, and, and, and Luke makes us laugh in the story, right? Because they're praying and hoping for a miracle. And the miracle knocks on the door and they leave him standing at the door, not believing what their eyes are seeing. And I wonder how often we pray for things, not really believing that it could possibly happen, that the cancer may be defeated, that the, we might actually get that job, that, that we can have reconciliation with that person. And, and again, there's a sermon there about prayer. But it's interesting, I think, to see the growth in the church as they handle similar situations, but in different ways. And, and again, just encourages us to know that we can grow individually and as a congregation. But we come to verse 11, and what is Peter's reflection when he comes to himself having escaped this prison or having been rescued from this prison? He says, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Did you catch that? You see, sometimes we put the focus on Herod and how bad he was. But this was a society that was supportive of his actions. That they were hoping that Peter would be killed would be executed. And, and that may seem strange for us. Because I think we have expectations that society will often embrace us, appreciate us, and value us. 
So despite a message of good news, despite a risen Savior, despite an active and growing, vibrant community with the presence of the apostles and miracles being performed by the Holy Spirit, showing the love of God throughout their neighborhoods. Despite all of those things, society and the state wanted this disruptive movement gone. So why would they do that? What did they have against Christianity. Well, the church in the first century didn't have, or in the first decade, didn't have a priority for placating the Romans. The church was not focused on keeping the Romans happy. It was focused on spreading the good news of Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit pours out on the day of Pentecost onto the 3,000 people come to Christ in the streets of Jerusalem as they're celebrating in the temple, as they're meeting in house to house, as all of this is going on, all this during a major festival as they're proclaiming a risen king, a new savior, the Romans are getting nervous. When the Romans get nervous, they kill people. And the church really didn't care. I mean, of course, they cared that people were dying, if that was what happened. But they didn't care that the Romans got nervous because they were proclaiming the kingdom of God and spreading the good news of Jesus. The church created instability and division in the local Jewish community. There were synagogues and families that were now divided as to who this Jesus person is as to what it meant to be a Jew, what it meant to be a child of God, what it meant to worship God. And so there was confusion, disputes in that community. The church's ultimate loyalty was to King Jesus. Do you remember the inscription on the cross as Jesus died? the king of the Jews. And it was true. Whether Pilate knew it or not, well, he didn't. But it was true. Jesus was the king of the Jews. We continue to this day to confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I think Lord has become a word that we've sort of lost the point of. But what we're really saying is Jesus is our king and Savior. Jesus is our president ultimate president and savior. Jesus is our ultimate Caesar and emperor and savior. Jesus is our ultimate authority and our savior. Now, if you're a government, a king, a president, an emperor, a Caesar, again, that starts making you nervous. How are people going to do what you tell them to do? if you're not the ultimate authority in their lives. And so the first Christians regarded their citizenship in the kingdom of God as first priority over national citizenship. Their connection with other Christians was stronger than that with their pagan countrymen. And so a Christian in Italy 
was closer in spirit and affection to a Christian goth or Egyptian or Briton than he was to a pagan Roman. That impacts your local society where people are expecting unquestioned loyalty to the well-being of the tribe or the town. And the Christians weren't unquestioned about anything. They frequently described themselves in their writings, both in Scripture and elsewhere, as alien citizens. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 11 and uh, verse 13, we have there one that is uh, well known in the um, Hall of Faith, as it's often called, listing Abraham and others who have lived by faith, looking forward to something that they never see fulfilled. And we're told in verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And as we continue to live our lives by faith, I think there's a, a point where we have to acknowledge that we also are strangers and aliens, foreigners on earth. In uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, we find a, a similar statement. Um, Paul writes, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord, the King, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Messiah, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so we have this higher authority that we are living for. Now, I don't think that necessarily makes Christians bad citizens. In fact, Christians should be committed to loving their neighbors and the well-being of those around them. But we're going to see that in the early 300s, the emperor, well, he wasn't an emperor at first, the general, then the emperor Constantine began the process of making Christianity the official empire, official religion of the Roman Empire. And I think there's a question to be considered in more time than we have right now about whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. Because if you're living in persecution, if you're living in hardship, if you can't worship freely, then surely it's a good thing when the government gives you a stamp of approval and allows you to have those freedoms. However, I think rejoicing too much at the unification of church and state, of church and empire, assumes that the church and the state have the same goals. And again, I think that's a question that considerable thought and conversation could be directed towards. Because when we look back at history, what we see is that the church became enamored with structures with using the structures of state to accomplish the goals of the church. And as it used the structures and systems of the state to accomplish the goals of God, it relied less and less upon the Holy Spirit. 
working among the people of God. Meanwhile, the state quite happily used Christianity to bring peace and unity to the empire. If there was going to be division or dispute amongst the churches, the state would call a council and tell them to sort it out. And then the state would side which, with whichever side had the numbers, as long as the church didn't challenge the state or its policies. And so was it a good thing? States and the church, the empire and the church became united. The connection of church and state always makes the church susceptible to the lure of power, wealth, and control. Throughout history, Christians have sought to impose their faith upon others. I think we often look at uh, maybe groups like uh, the Taliban and say, well, you know, one of their evils is that they condemn. Like, you have to be a Muslim. You have to do and live and have the faith that they have or else they're just going to execute you and they're going to try to force you to have a religion. And yet, throughout Christian history, there are so many examples of Christians in bed with kings and princes having exactly the same attitude and actions rather than allowing people to respond freely the good news of Jesus. I think there continues to be um, a temptation today for Christians to seek to impose our beliefs and values on society rather than persuading people of the good news of Jesus. So chapter 12 is this chapter of conflict. But it's also a chapter of death. You see, I think what's demonstrated here is that although the church in Jerusalem is being persecuted, although it's scattering, although James is killed, although Peter is dehumanized and imprisoned, ready for execution, although it seems that the state and the religious institution has the upper hand, God says, "Uh uh-uh. And that's in my translation, right? Uh Uh-uh. And he says, that guy you've got in jail with four guards chained on either side, naked, that he can't use the bathroom in privacy, that he can't sleep and roll over in his sleep without them jerking him back, like just everything they do to make him miserable in his final hours, that guy is my guy. And he says, and you think you control him? He says, but I control you and I'll just take him. Thank you very much and I will return him to his people as Because God says, I am Lord. And so the story begins with Herod taking what doesn't belong to him, taking the life of James. And we didn't read it, but you can read it on your own. The chapter ends with God taking back what he has given, life to Herod. And just as Herod is on the stage, as he's negotiated this international peace treaty, trade agreement, as he's on the stage and everyone is saying how great he is, he speaks like a divine, like a deity, like the greatest of kings. At that moment, God takes his life. And it may not have been instant. I think there's indications in in other writings that that he grew sick, he he had intestinal problems, he was, we're told here he is eaten by worms, but it happened on that day. It is death began. 
and God took what only he can take, rightfully, the life of Herod. And in the middle we see the cruelty of Herod, that those guards that had um, allowed, not they didn't really allow, had been present when Peter was freed, were also killed by Herod. You see, he didn't have any allegiance or any friends. It was just about his own accumulation of power. And so in the face of state-sponsored opposition, Luke summarizes in verse 24 that the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And I think there's a lesson here that we don't get sucked into thinking that in order for the kingdom of God to, to spread, in order for the church to carry out its mission, that we need the approval and the supports of someone other than God. And so here's my takeaway for you today. We can't rely on others to do God's work. We can't rely on others to do God's work. You see, we live and we serve in the shadow of the cross. And sometimes in that shadow will be Peter. And we'll be rescued from darkness and we'll see light and we'll experience the grace and the mercy of God. But sometimes we'll be James. Sometimes our hardships and our struggles and our illnesses and our conditions will be punished. Sometimes there's no real explanation for why it's one and not the other. But the work of the church, whether we're talking about individually or corporately, whether we're talking about our, uh, how we discuss our faith with others, or giving away diapers, and making a community garden available. However we spread the message of God's love and mercy, it's the work of God through the people of God. Now, others may help. Others may partner with us. Just last week we, we talked about Cornelius. Cornelius was known as a good man who gave generously to, to the Jews and those who were in poverty. I mean, there's, there's no rule established here or anywhere that says that the church can't work with other people. But we need to be aware that it's, it's the church's responsibility to be doing the work of God. Others may help. Others may partner with us in particular areas of our ministry. Others may support one part of our work, but not another. But God's work is the church's work. And so we're certainly called to follow Jesus so that our sins can be forgiven, so our relationship can be restored with God. But we're Christians. When we follow Jesus, because we share Jesus, we participate in the work of God. On Sunday, on Monday, on every day of the week. Because we are the people of God called to do the work of God.
It seems most appropriate that we skip that song and go right into this song as we prepare ourselves.